That was beautiful. Marcy will not tell you this, but she arranged that song. Yeah. And I tell you that because that's doing your thing. It's finding your gift, finding your thing and doing your thing. It's a response to the gospel. You know, the truth is, for 2,000 years, people all over the world have been responding to the gospel. The world has really been two things. It's been a foreshadowing of the coming of Jesus, and it's been a response to the coming of Jesus. And people have responded to the coming of Jesus in all different kinds of ways. Some of them have rebelled against it, many Uh, Some of them have accepted it tacitly. Some of them have given their lives for it. They've sacrificed everything. They've they've literally died for it or they've lived their whole life in sacrifice to it. And and what we're going to talk about today and what this whole Advent season is about is your response to the gospel in a very practical, sort of hardcore, hands-dirty way. It's not just your response as an individual or as a family. It's our response as a church, as Rio Vista Community Church. It's why we're here. It's why we exist. The church exists as a response to the coming of Jesus, to this this baby that was born in a manger 2,000 years ago. And then he grew up and he did what he said he was going to do. And and he, he died a sinner's death, but he didn't sin. And then he conquered death by raising from the grave. Otherwise... You would never have heard his name. He would have been one of the hundreds, one of the thousands who claimed to be God, who claimed to be a Messiah, who claimed to be the one that was promised. Maybe they even believed they did. But Jesus, Jesus did something different. He conquered sin and death for all who would trust in him. And that's what Advent is really all about. It's not just about the birth of a Savior. It's about the beginning of a story that God had actually been writing the preface to for all of of history. And so here we are in our little church, Rio Vista community, um, trying to sort all this out and trying to sort out what our response is going to be. And here's the deal. Um, Somebody said to me last week, I don't know if I can go to another one of these. Boy, I'm just crying and it's... Here's the thing. This is not one of those TV commercials that comes on at one in the morning because that's the only time they can get free TV time that has the big-eyed child, you know, starving to death and you know it. And um, this is not just that. And by the way, there's a place for really seeing suffering. I don't even mean to belittle those commercials, but that's not what this is. We're spending a whole season on this, a whole Advent season, because we don't want to just motivate you out of emotion or guilt, because the truth is, decisions made on that basis are usually very shallow, very superficial, very short-lived. But we want uh, to give you a, we want to build a, a reasoned, thoughtful case to appeal to your mind, to your heart, and to your will, that you... And we, Rio Vista Community Church, should care as a response to the gospel for the helpless, the voiceless, and the needy. And that, Jesus says, is how the world will know that we follow him. And by the way, not just a little bit. Not just writing that check. Not just doing things with closure, you know. in, you know, you know, type A people, we love closure. Give me a beginning, a middle, and an end. Give me a mission statement. Give me a strategy. Give me a beginning. Give me a middle. Give me an end. And then we'll have a party. That's not what we're talking about. 
We're talking about practical, effective, authentic, hands-dirty culture of compassion that's all in whatever it takes. Now, we cannot do that by ourselves. I cannot challenge each one of you to sit there in a little, on an island and say, hey, you, go all in. Whatever I present to you, pick the dirtiest, nastiest, most terrifying piece of it that makes no sense whatsoever and do that or else Jesus doesn't love you, okay? That's not going to work. What I'm asking us to do as a church, what Tom, what the staff, what the leaders, what we're asking of ourselves is to say, as a church, we are all in and each one of us must deal with a God who doesn't need us, who isn't short on cash, who isn't wringing his hands going, oh my goodness, how am I going to take care of people unless these people step up to the plate? but who has called you and response to his gospel, given you these very specific gifts and abilities and skills and resources and seasons of life and said, take your little piece, put it with his and his and hers and theirs and put them all together and guess what? That's the church with a capital C and that's how I'm changing the world. So that's what this series is all about. So, for the last couple of weeks, Tom has been talking about the cost of Christmas. You know, the fact is that there's a gift and cost to Christmas, to God himself, that we, we don't always contemplate. And it's not just that, that God gave his son who suffered and died for us and felt the pain of the nails in his hands and feet and the crown of thorns on his head and the, the humiliation. This is a God who sent his son to live a, a sinless life and die a sinner's death on a, on a trash heap between two thieves. But it wasn't just that. The horrific pain of the cross was in that very moment when for the first time and the last time in all of history, the Son of God would look to his Father and see his back. And carry on his shoulders the guilt and the shame and the weight of my rebellion against God. That was the cost of Christmas to God. Now the deal is that the cost of Christmas also costs those who respond to that message. Who respond to that event. Who respond to that God. And we saw last week that God does this in amazing ways. He, he, he is a God of great reversals. Okay? He, he, in a world that's upside down, it kind of makes sense that the right side up God that created everything will always look like he's doing things upside down. And we talked about some of those reversals last week. You know, God is a God of reversals. He, he humbles the proud. He exalts the humble. He makes crooked paths straight. He takes wrong things and makes them right. He, he takes cities and he makes the walls crumble when someone blows on a trumpet. It doesn't make sense. It's upside down. And one of the greatest reversals in all of human history was when this God of the universe who had foreshadowed, who had foretold, who had prophesied through history and through human activity, through human experience and through the prophets, that he would come into the world to make things right again with a Messiah that he would deliver that message to probably a 13 or 14-year-old girl of no status in a little bitty nothing town who was ordinary. She really was, but she was obedient. 
And that was it. Perhaps the greatest reversal on human scale that the world has ever seen. So this week, I want to look at another sacrifice. Someone else in Scripture who was also called to make a sacrifice in response to his faith in his God and obedience to his God. You know, there's a phrase. If I say once upon a time, isn't that a wonderful phrase? Once upon a time. You know what's coming, right? There's going to be some beautiful story and it'll involve a, a, a villain. There'll be some tension and then rising action and there'll probably be a Prince Charming and there'll be some struggle, but we all know who's going to win and, and then it'll, it'll happen and the, the good guys will overwhelm the bad guys and then there'll be some beautiful thing at the end that'll probably involve people falling in love, et cetera, and so forth, right? Off into the sunset. And if you take once upon a time and add to it, there was a baby, Oh, now it is on. It is even better. Because of all things in the world, these words should begin a story of limitless possibility and hope. Once upon a time, there was a baby. Last night I was at uh, First Baptist Church uh, at their pageant. How how many of you have seen that pageant? I'm going to tell you. Unbelievable. Incredibly fun, great Christmas experience, great, profound message. Uh, by the way, let me tell you why they do that every year. They do that because it's their thing. They do that because they love Jesus and they believe that God has called them specifically with their gifts and their abilities and their resources to share him that way. And I thank them for it. But last night, went to the pageant and every year they do this thing. They always have a kid's section, right? And it's unbelievable. These little kids are amazing. But what's the most amazing, it wouldn't matter what they did. They all run out. They're little bitty and they run out. There's a little kid dressed like a peanut with a top hat on. And there's two Hershey's kisses. And when they turn, you know, their kiss goes like this. And and they're not supposed to turn. They're just doing it because they're kids. And then there's little gingerbread kids running around. There's a kid dressed like an iPod and all these other Christmas presents. It is the cutest thing. And you're watching it and they're singing and they're kind of sort of dancing and run into each other and you're going oh you know and then the climax of the whole thing right gets a little quiet lights go down except for one in the middle beautiful little china doll girl walks out in the middle in a beautiful christmas dress way bigger than she is perfect hair beautiful little face and she goes Happy birthday, Jesus. <laughs> now everybody's crying. They're, they're, you know, hugging each strangers. And she, you know, she does the whole thing. And then, and, and then the gift was you, you know, and it's just awesome. And then she, she finished it. Happy birthday, Jesus. I love you. And then it's just, then it's a cry fest. There's just tears running down the aisles. And, and it's all wonderful. And, well, why is that? Why is that? It's because once upon a time, there was a baby. And a child represents what we all have imprinted on our hearts. God has imprinted on us the understanding that, that the story of a child should be full of potential and beauty. And it should always end in perfect union with a perfect God that created that child. But the devil's in the details, isn't it, in this world? I want to share, because today we're talking about his caring place, uh, which is a ministry to to single moms, to unwed moms. Obviously, many many or most of whom are teenagers, uh, young girls, not unlike Mary. And uh, so in, in, in light of that, I want to tell you a story and how it begins. 
A real story that's happened right here in our community, and it's one of countless. This is from the Miami-Dade County Juvenile Justice System, Family Division. On or before March 7th, the department received an abuse report alleging that a mother had given birth to a child and that she was homeless. The report further indicated that she had a history of cocaine use since she was 15. The mother has a five-year-old daughter, Alyssa, who is in the custody of her maternal grandmother. The mother gave custody of her child to her mother due to, the, due to her inability to care for the child. Since her release, she has not resumed custody of the child. Prior to moving to Miami, the mother was residing at the Atlantic City Rescue Mission in New Jersey. On or about February 19th, the mother informed the mission that she had a grandfather who resided in Homosassa, Florida, and that, that he had been looking for her and wanted her to move to Florida to live with him. A counselor at the mission reminded her that if she moved to Florida, she would be leaving her older daughter behind. However, the mother informed the counselor she would be moving to Florida anyway. The mother's doctor advised her that it was not in her or her, her, or her baby's best interest to travel so far in her pregnancy. The mother did not heed the doctor's advice. She left the mission on or around March 1st with approximately $329 in her pocket. On or around March 7th, the mother informed her counselor that her grandfather was bedridden and that she had made a mistake by going to Florida. She was in the hospital at the time of the call. The counselor then contacted the mother's grandfather to confirm her story, but told her but he told her that he had not heard from the mother in a long time and had no knowledge of her being in Florida. She had reportedly been living at the Sun Hotel in Miami with a former male resident of the Atlantic City Rescue Mission who then left her at the hotel with no money. The baby was born at Jackson Memorial Hospital in Miami. A story only just begun, but not very well. Waiting to be written. You know, it's interesting. It would all ride on the decisions in the moment of simple, ordinary people, wouldn't it? All these things, all the way back to when she got pregnant, uh, what she did after she got pregnant, uh, what her parents did, how she was raised. All these things were all tied to all these little ordinary decisions by ordinary people that would lead to extraordinary circumstances. You know, ordinary people like the guy I want to talk about today, and that's Joseph, Mary's husband, the father of Jesus, and the decisions he had to make on the day that he found out that his young teenage fiance was pregnant and that he knew in his heart of hearts that he couldn't be the father. That was the reality of his situation. So this week, we're going to consider the cost of Christmas to Joseph. And as you listen to it, I want you to think about yourself. You see, even before Joseph fully understood who Jesus was, uh, he was obedient to God. In order to adopt the Son of God, Joseph would lose more than just money and status and reputation. Uh, Joseph um, would, would, for the rest of his life, be held in suspicion, just like Mary. Through Joseph, we're going to see that God sees all of us like lost children. What we're going to see from Joseph's obedience is that he 
didn't consider the blood coursing through a baby's veins. He didn't consider the, the social status. He didn't consider the, the rightness or wrongness of the situation. He didn't consider the benefit to him. He didn't do a cost-benefit analysis. He was simply obedient to what he knew to be true. And what he knew to be true is that he was a lost child apart from his God. That he was an orphan apart from his God. And we will see that God will adopt us again, not because of the blood in our veins or our good works or our usefulness to him, but because of his mercy and his compassion. That is the purest form of his righteousness. And when he looks at your face, and when we look at these faces... We see sons and daughters and cousins and uncles and aunts of us because we're children of God. So with that in mind, we're going to look at that moment in time when Joseph got this great news. Matthew 1, verses 18 through 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, and that's an important phrase, that was a big deal back then, before they came together, she was found to be with child by the Holy Spirit. And Joseph, her husband, being a righteous man and not wanting to disgrace her, planned to send her away secretly. All right, now you're listening to this, and maybe you're going, wait a minute, that doesn't sound like a very righteous thing to do, right? He's this girl, he's in love with her, you know, they're deeply in love, and she's made a mistake maybe, or he's confused, doesn't know what's going on, there's all these strange rumors going around, and he just, because he's righteous, he's going to send her away quietly? That doesn't sound very righteous at all, but let me tell you a little bit about Joseph's situation, okay? In ancient Rome, during the time of Jesus, there was no more significant commitment that you could make than betrothal. Betrothal, way more powerful than uh, and and uh, 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 way more consequences involved with breaking a betrothal than there are today with breaking an engagement. In fact, it was much more binding than even a business contract because it didn't just involve a business deal; it involved social and and religious principles as well. So a betrothal was a big deal, and it involved a lot of money. The bride, uh, her family would put together a dowry, which was basically all the assets that they could afford to give away with her to the husband to help build their, their family, to build their assets. So there was this big lump of resources that would come from the bride's side, and then the groom would pay what was called a bride price. And he'd pay that to the, uh, the, the powers that be, and that, it'd cost money for him to marry her. He'd pay this bride price, okay? And this was done. The dowry set, the bride price made, more socially and legally uh, uh, binding than even a business contract. And the other deal is that in a patriarchal society, okay, your dignity was all wrapped up in the purity of this relationship and with who you married and their status and what they brought to the table, okay? And by the way, women had basically no status. The groom could put the bride away for any number of reasons, not the least of which was infidelity, especially when it was revealed with an illegitimate child, an unplanned pregnancy. So here's the deal. This is the position Joseph found himself in. And I want you to think about this modern day right now as if it is you or your son or whatever. If Joseph didn't immediately send her away, which meant divorce her, 
three things would happen. The first thing is he'd be considered a fool. He'd be a laughingstock. Look at this idiot. What a, what a pathetic lump of a, a nothing of a man who can't even stand up to this situation and see it for what it is and leave this girl. Because, by the way, um, your, your fiance's pregnant. The Lord did it. It was the Holy Spirit. Did you hear yourself laugh? They laughed back then too. This was a common story. This, if we, these weren't the first people that this ever, that ever said this. There were two things you could do back then. You, you, when you made up this story, you could elevate your child to a special status. You could lay claim to some special uh, status in history or in the community because, oh, I was born of a virgin. And the other thing you could do is you could cover up your indiscretions. Oh, it was the Holy Spirit. And everybody go, oh, that's so wonderful. Can you believe that? You know. So they were just a part of that mix, okay? So the first thing is, this guy's an idiot, okay? Second thing that happens is if he doesn't divorce her right away, the wheels start turning and people start going, oh, wait a minute. He doesn't want to get rid of this lady or this baby. Maybe he's really the father. He's the fornicating premarital sex father of this baby. That's the real story. So then the social status continues to diminish and be destroyed. It begins to affect his, affect his business dealings, his social relationships, his security and his society. But then there's a third one that's even worse, and that is this. He could actually be legally accused of pandering and using his wife as a prostitute. And it didn't happen very often, but he could go to jail basically for being a pimp. Now, you're that guy, and you know in your head, I had nothing to do with this. I didn't make this, I didn't make this girl pregnant. By the way, another little caveat, they barely knew each other. It was forbidden for them to spend any private time together before they got married. So the only thing they knew of each other was what they knew socially, and when they were with their families in public, they couldn't even go off in a room by themselves because the, the, the understanding of the day is that if a man and a woman are in private together for more than 20 minutes, they've, they've had sex. Seriously. So they barely, in many ways, didn't even know each other. So you're that guy. You're Joseph. So that's why you consider how to put her away. So his options are two. He can either legally uh, sue for divorce, in which case if he does that, which is the common sense thing to do. It's the thing that you would do today if you were in this situation and you were just using today's common sense. Because in suing for divorce legally, he could get her dowry He could win her dowry and leave her destitute as punishment for what she did. And he could get his bride price back. So enter the righteous man piece where he says, look, I'm not going to do any of that. I feel bad for her. I'm just going to write her a certificate of divorce, give it to her privately. She can move on with her life. I'll move on with mine. I'll make a statement that this wasn't my child. And that's where he's left. Mary's options were few. With this certificate of divorce, she was going to become a prostitute, a thief, or a beggar with a baby. That was it. Never get married. So it continues. But when he had considered this, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. 
She will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Remember that? Jesus was actually Joshua, the name Joshua that, that, that meant that he would save his people and it was converted to Jesus. Uh, he will call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. Now, as we've seen, Joseph had plenty to fear, but here's the deal. How was he able to think through this even as a young man, probably 18 years old? Joseph had a reasoned faith. Joseph knew his holy scriptures. Joseph believed in his God and knew of his God's nature and character. He knew that this idea, God with us, Emmanuel, was totally countercultural, totally upside down. The gods that everyone else worshipped were up there, high and mighty, living in mystery, fickle, did whatever they wanted. The idea that those gods wanted to be with me was ridiculous. But Joseph believed in that God. This son of his would be Jesus, the Savior of his people. So let's keep going. Now all this took, now all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall be with child. Behold, the virgin shall be with child and shall bear a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. This prophecy was taken from Isaiah chapter 7. And just real briefly, it was a prophecy given by Isaiah from God to King um, Ahaz. King Ahaz was the king. There was a civil war going on with Israel. King Ahaz was the king of part of Israel, and he was getting ready to be attacked in his own capital city by another part of Israel that was after him. And on the other side, there was this nation, Assyria, which was big and powerful and his enemy and was coming down to get him from there. And Isaiah came to Ahaz to say, Ahaz, you have a dilemma. You're going to be attacked by your own people, but you've got this enemy over here. And common sense would say to ally yourself with this enemy. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. Right? Take the lesser enemy and defeat your people to protect your city. Common sense. War theory. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. But Isaiah comes and he says, no, 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 you need to be obedient and faithful to your God and do not align yourself with either of your enemies, but be faithful to your God. And, but, and, and even to prove it to you, I'll send you a sign. And he gives him the quote, behold, the virgin shall bear a son and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which translated means God with us. God will come down. God will be with you and among you, Ahaz, and he will protect you and he will redeem you and he will restore you against your enemies. But Ahaz chose common sense and he allied himself with the Assyrians and they defeated his enemies for a short time and then all of them were cast into exile as slaves. So here's little Joseph. He's faced with the same dilemma. He's even given the same prophecy. He's got the same choice to make in that moment because he knows that with this will, become, will come great sacrifice. And he has to choose. And this is what happens. And so Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. That is the most big, that's the biggest understatement in the world. 
And Joseph awoke from his sleep and did as the angel of the Lord commanded him and took Mary as his wife, but kept her a virgin until she gave birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. So we say, hooray, Joseph did it. He did what we wanted him to do. He took the high road and he married Mary anyway, taking in her child and raising him as his own, legally adopting him. But you're going to go, hey, wait a minute, wait a minute. If an angel appears to me and tells me exactly what God wants me to do, I'm in. I'll do it. But let me, let me just draw your attention to one little phrase. And Joseph awoke from his sleep. He was dreaming. He had a dream. And while he was in this dream state, this angel came and appeared to him. And he quoted him this prophecy, which he would know very well. Emmanuel, God with us, conceived by the Holy Spirit. The the virgin will bear a child. He tells her the whole deal. Now he's asleep. He sees that. And then he wakes up. And he's back in the real world. You ever have that moment? This is the moment he had, that moment when you go to bed at night with a million pounds on your back. Your house is being foreclosed or you just lost your job or tomorrow you think you're going to or your business has blown up or you just found out that someone did something unscrupulous, cost you a lot of money or you've done something unscrupulous and you know when you go to bed that the world is on your shoulders and you fall asleep and for a short time you go into dreamland and everything's okay but then the moment you wake up, It smells the same and it looks the same and you feel the same and you are living life again. That's what happened to Joseph. But Joseph was obedient. He knew his scripture. He knew his God. He knew that he had no choice but to be obedient to what his God would say. You know, you and I say, well, back then they used to throw these miracles around. You know what? In John, it records, John records that even in the real world, Jesus did miracles in front of many, many, many witnesses. And it says, even though he did, they still didn't believe. Healing people, raising someone from the dead, the blind are seeing right in front of people and they still won't believe. And then Jesus makes this wonderful statement too. He says, you know what? Even if a man were to raise himself from the dead, people wouldn't believe. Joseph's decision to be obedient was not a rational, carefully considered, empirical, empirical, logical response to the facts. Joseph had to look through his circumstances and be obedient to the God in whom he believed, the God who was the great deliverer, the God God who delivered the Israelites from, from Egypt. And the God who delivered everyone who was obedient throughout history would deliver him. And so... He followed him. And why? Risking persecution, losing money, losing status. Because he could do no other. As a little caveat, King Herod had uh, found out that people believed the Messiah had been born. And whenever that happened, they would push down these uprisings. So he had just sent out his people and said, I want you to go and kill all the boys anywhere near Bethlehem two years and younger. So, oh, by the way, he had all these decisions to make and the feds were out to murder his child. Couldn't go to the police. But he was obedient because this was his response to his God. So, I leave you with this. In, in the investment world, there's something called risk tolerance. 
right? And risk tolerance, that, is, uh, that refers to the amount of risk that an investor could or should or would be willing to take, right? And there are several factors that inform a person's risk tolerance. Here are three of them. Number one, the cost of failure. Okay, I evaluate what's it going to cost me if, if my investment goes bad. Number two, the length of time to recover if you fail. How long am I going to have to fix this thing if it goes bad? And then finally, the potential for profit. What's the win? So if you think for a minute like an investor, like an investment advisor, you're going to look at this thing with Joseph and you're going to use your common sense and you're going to go, all right, look, the cost of failure is a life of, you know, social outcast, a life of probably poverty and, and very possibly you could get killed. The downside is really bad. What's the length of time to recover? Well, if you're dead, it's never. There is no recovery. At best, it's this cruddy life that you've got to recover for what? And then finally, what's the potential for profit? Well, I guess you could live, survive. I guess you could protect that life that you thought you were going to have, that normal life. That would be um, the potential for profit. But now take that thing and do what God does and reverse it and look at it like Jesus would, okay? And let's look at it differently. The cost of failure is redefined, isn't it? Because the cost of failure is not about success and failure in this life. It's not about money and all these things. It's about obedience. If I obey, I succeed. That's it. And if I obey, I succeed. Well, what's the length of time to recover if I fail? Well, it's forever. I'm in eternity with my God, even if I'm killed and for my obedience. What's the potential for profit? God's going to change the world through my obedience. Or maybe the world of one person. So, you know, we think of Joseph and Mary as these great heroes, and they were. They were, they were people with, we think of them as people with unique insight and special revelation from God and superhuman wisdom and discipline, but the truth is they were a heck of them a lot more like you and me. They had limited resources. They had limited information. They were immature. They had all those things that you and I have. But they had hope in this promise that if they were obedient, then the great Redeemer would tell the great story of redemption through them. They were faithful. That was it. Hey, listen, one other thing before I go. Earlier in the service, I told you about a little girl whose mom was homeless and she was born in Dade County uh, without a place to live. And I wanted to tell you the rest of that story. Uh, well, that little girl was born at Jackson Hospital, and she was sent to a shelter home of a woman named Tanya Spiegel. And that woman, Tanya, went to my church. And we, uh, my wife and I, had wanted to adopt kids. My wife was adopted, and we'd always wanted to, uh, to do the same thing. So we met that little girl uh, through Tanya, and we ended up adopting her. And that's Raina, and a lot of you know who she is. And uh, I just want to say to you that all those people that were involved in that whole process. That's what we're asking of you in the church here at Rio. We're asking you to find your place in that process uh, where orphans find a loving home and a loving community.